Want to teach your kids financial literacy, but not sure where to start? Greenlight can help. With Greenlight, parents can keep an eye on kids' spending and saving, while kids and teens use a card of their own to build money confidence. As a parent, you can send instant money transfers, set up chores, automate allowance, and more. It's a convenient way to run your household, customized to your family's needs, and the easy way to raise financially smart kids. Get started with Greenlight today and get your first month free at greenlight.com slash odyssey. Knowing how to speak and understand a new language can be an invaluable tool when traveling, meeting new friends, or just even to master a new skill. But it's not always simple when you're bogged down by textbooks and structure classes. That's why so many people trust Rosetta Stone. Rosetta Stone is the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app. It truly immerses you in the language you want to learn, like Spanish, French, Italian, Chinese, and more. You won't just be studying English translations. The Rosetta Stone intuitive process helps you pick up a language naturally, first with words, then phrases, then sentences. Don't put off learning that language. There's no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. Visit rosettastone.com rs10. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com rs10 today. A word of warning. This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes strong language. It therefore may be unsuitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. We are recording this on January 29th, 2020. I'm Anna Garcia, and our guest is clinical and forensic psychologist Dr. Judy Ho. Welcome, Dr. Judy. Thank you so much, Anna. It's such a pleasure to be here. We know that you're a regular on this podcast, and we always appreciate what you bring to the conversation. Just perhaps remind everyone what your expertise is, especially in the area of crime. Absolutely. So I'm a clinical and forensic neuropsychologist. And in my private practice, I oftentimes am called on as an expert witness in both criminal and civil cases. And so as far as my work in the forensic world, it's really all about getting into the minds of these purported criminals and understanding what could have led to that. Are they rehabilitable? Um, Can they become functioning and productive members of society once more and being able to inform the judge about that? And we always see you, Dr. Judy, on television and we hear of you on other podcasts. So it's so great to have you in the studio today. Thank you so much. So this week we have the case of an NYPD officer who has been charged with the murder of his eight-year-old son and a man who used Snapchat to create a child sexual exploitation ring. But first, we've got an update on a case, Dr. Judy, that we focused on in our last episode, and there's been a major development in this case. This is the case of 25-year-old Stephanie Pars. She went mm-hmm. missing the night of October 30th, 2019, right before Halloween, and her ex-boyfriend, John Osbligen, killed himself on November 22nd of 2019. Now, he had a history of documented domestic violence, and he was a person of interest in this case. But the feeling was once he killed himself, did he take with him to the grave the information of where Stephanie could have been? Police finally released information that there was a suicide note. We didn't get this information until her body was found. Mm -hmm. And in the suicide note, he admitted to some level of involvement. He didn't completely 
come clean, if you mm. will. And he never disclosed where Stephanie's body was. And there have oh. been hundreds of people searching for her. It was an 88-day search, and Stephanie's body was finally found on January 26, just mm. a few days ago. Now, we focused on this case because of one of our listeners. They wrote to us, and they asked us to look into it. So we did a whole episode on it. Mm. And so uh, we got a statement from our viewer slash listener, Linda, about this story. And here's mm. what she says. I've never seen a family go through such a horrific thing and have the strength and endurance to keep going weekend after weekend and not give up. Stephanie's angels, too, those were the people who were part of the search. Mm. Some of these people didn't know her and just wanted to help. So it's it's just so—it's yeah. devastating that the body has been found. Um, I watched the prosecutor's news conference, and the parents were there— And the father spoke, obviously very emotional. But one of the things he said that really touched me is he said, Stephanie can now come home to us. Mm. And as badly as I feel about how this all turned out, I think it seemed as if they were braced and prepared. But do you think anyone is really braced for the finality of, of the fact that, yes, indeed, your daughter has been murdered? I don't think so. I mean, grief works in really mysterious ways. And I think they probably went through a lot of different stages from denial to bargaining to depression and frustration in all of this. 88 days not knowing, but always knowing that there is this very significant possibility that as the days wore on, that it's more likely that she probably was killed. And then to actually get that news and to know that it's final, I can sense that there's going to be a lot of complex emotions. And I think what's wonderful about the family is that they are saying, at least we can now put a period on this and we can move on to actually grieve our daughter. Because when they're waiting, it's almost like the grief process doesn't really get to start, right? And then once you know for certain that your family member has passed away, then you can really do the hard work of grieving. And it sounds like they're already doing so many wonderful things already, starting an organization, trying to bring more awareness to domestic violence cases and victims of domestic abuse. So I think that that's really, really brave of them. Yes, they're going to start a foundation in Stephanie's name, and it's going to focus really on victims of domestic violence and on missing people. So they'll be forming that foundation very soon. And, of course, if you have a case for us that you want us to look into here at True Crime Daily, please reach out to us because it's important to us that we be responsive to the needs of the people who listen to us, I think. Yeah, I love that that you do that, by the way. I think it just builds such a strong connection, too, to the people who are listening and watching that they know that they can actually do something about a case as it's unfolding. And I think with this case, what was so devastating is could it have been preventable because there was this long track record of this person having anger issues and and having domestic violence issues in the past. Well, you know, here's a question I always ask. And prosecutors are very interesting in their answer. When someone is determined to kill you, Mm -hmm. is it almost impossible to stop that obsessed human being from killing you? Right. Yeah. I mean, it's a really good question because I think people talk about this a lot, that even when you have a protective order, it can only protect you to a certain extent. Because if the person shows up and you're alone and there's no other way They can still do what they came to do. And so, of course, there's that very sad part of it. But at the same time, the protective order can cover you in some instances where, Mm -hmm. you know, if they violated enough, there's going to be some really significant legal consequences. But I I agree. I think when somebody is that determined, perhaps it's just a matter of time. But that is so sad. 
that that might be the statement. Yeah. And scary. And, and, and I think this person obviously had an obsession because there was this lead up where it was rapid text messages as she wasn't answering right before this all happened. And I think that's how they kind of traced it back and said, you know what? He absolutely is the guy that we have to put this on, you know? And I, and I think there was that sort of reactionary thing that probably built up in his mind. How dare you not answer to me? And, you know, he's already so angry and he's already explosive. And so it's just, you know, the perfect storm, a horrible, perfect storm. Sadly, we've got another perfect storm that is as horrible as I have seen yet as a crime reporter. Our first case is the murder of an eight-year-old autistic boy in New York who essentially froze to death in the family's garage because his father made him sleep on the concrete floor without pillows, a blanket, a mattress, nothing. You know why? Because it was all punishment. I can't believe it. It was 19 degrees outside. It was Mm -hmm. 19 degrees outside. The victim is Thomas Valva, and this happened in a middle-class neighborhood on Long Island called mm-hmm. Center Mauritius. I have been there many times myself. Mm. You know, it's the kind of place that you dream of growing up. Yeah. So this week on January 24th, the boy's father, Michael Valva, who's a 40-year-old New York City police officer, and his mm-hmm. live-in fiance, Angela Polina, who's 42 years old, they were both arrested and they were charged with second-degree murder. Mm. The Suffolk County Police are investigating this. The two have pleaded not guilty. They've already Mm. had a a court hearing. And the father is being held without bail. Mm. And the district attorney is saying that this is one of the worst crimes he has ever seen in his life. So you can imagine how horrendous this is. Right. And I'm sorry that this is going to be as brutal as it's going to be, but we've got to get the facts out there. It it kills me when I think that they lived in a house on, on a on a street called Bittersweet Lane. Oh, it's unbearable to me. That's so awful. And that's where police responded on January 17th. It was the father himself who called police saying Mm. he needed help because he said that his little boy had fallen in the driveway and I guess he had hit his head and was unconscious. Mm. He was supposedly on his way walking to the school bus. So that, of course, is his version of events. Now, when the paramedics arrived... They found the father performing CPR on Thomas, and this was in the basement. It was about 9.40 a.m. The boy was then rushed to the hospital, and he was pronounced dead there. His body temperature was 76 degrees. Oh, my gosh. It's frigid. It's cold. It's ice. He was ice. I know, and it's hard to imagine what he must have gone through because this is a gradual death. This is not... Okay, it happened in an instant, and you hope that there was no pain. I mean, I just think about how much suffering this child had in the last few moments of his life. I think he had a lot of suffering his entire life based on some of the information that prosecutors have released. Mm -hmm. The medical examiner has ruled without question this was a homicide, and the major contributing factor to the little boy's death was hypothermia. Mm -hmm. Michael Valva, he's the father. We told you he was a police officer. He told the police that his son, Thomas, again, was trying to catch catch the bus and he fell. That was the story. Mm. Well, police say that there were incredible inconsistencies in that story. According to the Suffolk County Police, the little boy was never in the driveway that morning. They were able to confirm it because of surveillance cameras. Mm. And he suffered head and facial injuries that were, again, completely inconsistent with what the father was saying. Now, because the family had an extensive surveillance camera system inside and outside of the house— Supposedly because that's how they watched all of the children in the house. Mm -hmm. There were six kids in this house. Because of the videotapes and the audio tapes, police were able to figure out what happened. 
And wow. this is when it gets very disturbing. Uh, I also want to tell you what was going on in the family. So, mm-hmm. Dr. Judy, there were it was a blended family. So mm-hmm. you had three boys from his side and you had three girls from her side. Mm. And apparently the boys were treated far worse than the girls ever were, according wow. to investigators. So the surveillance video shows that he punished his three sons by withholding food and exposing them to the frigid temperatures. I guess he'd either put them outside or he'd put them in the garage. Right. Police seize these videotapes, and it shows that for two nights prior to Thomas's death, that's the little boy who died, the eight-year-old, the father forced Thomas and his 10-year-old brother Anthony, who is also autistic, mm. to sleep in the unheated garage. And the video shows them shivering. Oh, I am. I'm just so upset by this. The police go on to say that the videos on the morning that Thomas died, it shows that he was struggling to stand up and he was unable to walk. Oh, and that one of the children asked, you could hear this on the video. What's what's wrong with Thomas? Why can't he walk? And the fiance Mm. responds, well, Mm. when you're washed with cold water and it's freezing, you get hypothermia. Oh, my gosh. I So they, I mean, they recognized what they were doing. Oh, totally. And they were explaining it to this other child. Absolutely. That's absurd. I'm so sorry, but that's just like, that makes my blood boil. It's so disgusting. It gets worse. So according to published reports in Newsday, which is a Long Island newspaper, very well regarded, the father allegedly said this. He said this about his son being cold and unable to stand. This is the father's words. Mm-hmm. He's cold. Boo effing who? Wow. No understanding of what it takes, obviously, to actually keep a child alive. I mean, the extent of punishment, there's no real connection to what actually could kill somebody, basically. Clearly, this dad did not love his dad based on that statement. Again, this is this is from the videotapes. Now, prosecutors referred to these video and audio recordings at the couple's arraignment. And again, it showed how the children were shivering in the cold. Mm. Now, there's another tape that also is very damaging about how the father allegedly treated these children. He supposedly had his hand over Thomas's mouth Mm. and you could hear his fiance saying, what are you doing? And he says, quote, suffocating him. That's what I'm doing. Wow. So that's just are you I'm seeing a pattern here just just based in the last few days of this child's life based on these videotapes. Once they were able to get these videos, it was unbelievable. The district attorney says that the depravity of these defendants is so shocking. It Mm. caused the death of this little boy and they watched him die. So now, of course, they're investigating all the potential abuse that could have gone on in that house. Right. But there's a lot of history. There's mm-hmm. a lot of history because back in 2018, what, two years ago mm-hmm. before he died, the county started an investigation and the family was put under a form of supervision and they had to take parenting classes. And, and a lot of this stems from a report that came from the school itself. And I know you've got more information 
on what that report reveals about what these kids were going through. Yeah. So in November 2018, a school psychologist shared a letter. And in the letter, the school psychologist writes, the biggest concern is that Mr. Volva and his fiance Angela, do not understand the depth of Anthony and Thomas's disabilities because they both had autism. Both Anthony and Thomas come into school hungry and frequently say they did not eat breakfast because they did not ask for breakfast or somehow they got in trouble. Again, more evidence that they have been long using deprivation from food as a way to punish these kids. The boys were afraid to go to the nurse's office for a while. They said it was because they were directed by Mr. Volva, their father, and Angela not to go to the nurse's office. So don't even seek medical support. This occurred shortly after the school nurse became involved in a CPS case because Thomas had multiple bruises from dad and even their biological mother, Justina, had tried to alert Suffolk County family court judges multiple times to remove her children from Michael's care. She created Twitter in 2018 to show that abuse and she shared a video where Thomas was saying, daddy said, I can't hug you, I can't kiss you, and I can't say I love you, mommy. And then Justina says, well, what if you do? What will the punishment be? And this is so sad. Thomas says, then he'll put me outside. So how long had he been utilizing that punishment and how long had Thomas survived it until the day that he died? I think based on the videotapes that the mother has posted on Twitter, if we just look at those dates of posting clearly for two years, just based on the videotape, so awful. one could honestly, I think, presume that it went on much longer than that. But the only documented, I would call evidence of that, these are the children in their own words. Mm -hmm. So the two married in 2004, and then they began their divorce proceedings in 2015. And apparently in the court records, the mother did tell the court that she believed that the father was abusing the boys, but nonetheless, Mm. custody went to him. Now, that's odd. Well, This is the question I'm going to raise because I can't make an accusation. But he's a New York City cop. And she appears to be an immigrant. She's got an accent. Mm. Do you think who's going to have more sway in that court? The New York City cop? Yeah. Or the mom? It's a really good point. I mean, again, you know, he has... The inside knowledge in many cases, right? I mean, who knows what kind of cases he worked on as a New York City cop, but he's been a cop since 2005. And so maybe he's seen other cases like this pan out and he knows just the right things to say in front of the judge to get custody. Absolutely. But why? Why get custody when you obviously don't love your children or don't even know how to deal with, you know, basically growing pains? I mean, yes, these children had special needs, but it just doesn't seem like he has the compassion or the wherewithal to even want to learn. Well, how is it that I should manage these children when they're being difficult. Well, what is the what is the psychology behind that? If you in some ways kind of don't like or resent your children yeah. because you treat them badly, yet you want to keep them and you don't want them to be with the mother, I don't understand what what's the thinking behind that. And you know what's so sad is in so many cases like this, it's all about power and control, really. It's about power and control of your children and power and control against your ex, right? So it's like keep the children because then they're under your control and also the ex can't be happy, which is so silly because he seemed kind of miserable managing these children. And it was known that he's had a lot of anger issues. And so, I mean, it just feels like he was a ticking time bomb from the beginning. And it's just very sad that the judges ruled the way they did. It's sad that Child Protective Services ordered what it sounds like a year of positive parenting courses. And then once they finished, they kind of said, OK, well, we'll let you try it on your own. But there wasn't more follow up. And I, and I get it. CPS is a very 
overburdened system. But at the same time, when you get multiple reports, both before and after they ordered this year of parenting courses, isn't there some kind of follow-up, maybe just a few months down, check in on them, drop in on them? I mean, couldn't they have done more? I think so. And they have started, the county has started an investigation to figure out what they could have done, what more they could have done, mm. where they failed, who failed. Yeah. Apparently, there was another call within the last year where they went out, but apparently no one was home when they went to check. I don't know whether the complaint would have come from the mother. We don't know. I think it is important, obviously, that you've got to look at at the bureaucracy that yes. is in charge of protecting these children. But sadly, trying to give me an answer after this little boy's dead just does not comfort me. It doesn't comfort right. this family. No. Uh, it's not enough. No. You know, it's not enough. But but again, you know, I, I can't believe that given the videos that she posted and how public she was about this, you know, of course, these are children talking. But this has always been my belief, especially young children. They generally don't lie. The li- yeah. the stuff they lie about is the fantastical stuff. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yes. And so she basically had interviews with her children describing what was going on. And you know how you just mentioned this issue of control? There is a video in which uh, the mother is waiting for the two children and the father has them each by the hand. And the children are trying to get away from him to run to say hi to mommy. And he's holding on to their hands and not letting them go. Just, it appears, just to torture them. Yeah, just to spite her too. Absolutely. And so I watch this video and I'm like... Let go of the child. Let him run to his mother. So that's just one of them. But the thing that's interesting is that the mother tells a tale, again, with these videos of abuse, of fear and brainwashing that they were Mm. experiencing. Um, Here's something that I found very interesting on one of the videos. So it looks like the kids are in the car with dad. Mm hmm. And you can hear him leading the kids in this chant. You know how you say something, the kids Mm -hmm. repeat it in their little voices. And this is what he was saying. Mommy is mean. And then they repeat, mommy is mean. Mommy is mean. Mommy hits me. I love Angela, forcing them to say, I love Angela, the fiance. I love daddy. And then, and then this breaks my heart. You can hear one of the children asking for water, saying that they're thirsty. Daddy, can I have some water? Daddy, can I have some water? When you now know, looking at this video and listening to it, that these children were denied water and food. Mm-hmm. Basic needs. Basic needs, you know, for how, how many years. And the crazy thing is there was all of this surveillance tape. I mean, he kind of built his own uh, his own downfall in many yes. ways, right? Right. Because you just go back and you see, whoa, this has been a pattern. And he didn't erase the videos, obviously. So they were just out there for them to utilize. And this also kind of reminds me a little bit about a case a while back. And it reminds me of the Turpin case. Do you remember oh that? Oh, my God, yes. With all the children being chained to beds. And again, you know, they're soiling themselves. They're not getting their basic needs met. I mean, I know that this is slightly different, but it reminds me of that sort of group brainwashing, group punishment, nobody gets their basic needs met, and it's all about control once again. And and it's like, but why even bother? Because that's that's kind of exhausting to have to do that rather than just try to be a better parent. You know, I feel like which one's worse, you know? I don't I don't, I don't yeah. understand. Yeah. In fact, there is another similarity to this peeing pants here because Thomas mm-hmm. is seen in one of these videos describing that he's being locked outside and not given breakfast because he had an accident and he peed his pants. And you know what's so sad is many children with autism, because it's a developmental disorder, they are going to have developmental delays. 
you know, they tend to take a longer time before they can truly achieve toilet training. And so again, this is not his fault. You know, he's still learning. He's just taking his time getting there. And again, the father and Angela, they are misinterpreting this as, oh, you're disobeying us. You're being a bad kid. And just doing things that are so out of the ordinary for somebody soiling their pants at that age is, again, for a child with developmental difficulties, it's kind of normal. Like, where, what happened to those positive parenting classes? Did he learn nothing or did he just not care? You know, because this is just ridiculous as I'm reading about it. I think it's probably a little bit of both, really. Yeah. It's interesting in the school report that you referenced that the school got the sense that they, they really did not understand the severity of the autism that the children had, especially the older boy, the 10-year-old, because apparently what would happen to him is he would freeze when he got anxiety and and the— <sighs> The school report describes it almost as if, like, it's a self-imposed mute button because mm. his anxiety gets so so extreme he can't handle it that then he can't speak. Right. So can you imagine? And I heard him on that tape where the father was doing the callback chanting, you know, I love mommy, I, I don't love mommy, I love daddy thing. Mm -hmm. And you could hear him—the father keeps asking him— say you love daddy, and he's struggling to get the words out. Wow. And so knowing he has severe anxiety, can you imagine he's put in this position where he's if he doesn't answer his dad the way his dad wants him to answer something mm. bad could happen to him? I mean, that's in the mind of a child. Yeah. And you know what's so interesting and telling is that, you know, children in many ways are so much more intuitive than adults. Right? Adults, we start to kind of overthink things and we analyze. But children, they just respond in the moment. The fact that he sort of freezes and just stops speaking. I mean, it is such a parallel to what his punishments were. and. When he is punished, I mean, it's basically like Michael and Angela were imposing fight or flight responses in their children all the time. When they were at home, when they were supposed to be safe and be nurtured, they're constantly thinking about survival. And, and, and so anything that happens at school that feels a little intimidating, it's like immediately you go to that place of I'm unsafe and they just freeze up and stop talking. So to me, that makes me sound, I mean, that to me sounds like these kids have just been tortured for so long that like they're basic go-to is sort of a state of fear all the time, no matter who it's coming from. Is there, is there hope for them? Can they, can the, is the damage that's been done to them so severe given also some limitations that they have simply because of the autism? What do you think? Well, I think it's really hard because it sounds like the older son is 10. Yeah. And so the early developmental years are the most important for establishing positive and healthy attachment and learning that the world can be a safe place, that parents can be there to support you. So it's almost like having to really relearn all of that. It, but it takes so much longer as they get older because they just go to people with a state of mistrust. And I would venture to say that I'm sure these children have some type of PTSD that it takes a long time to recover from. I work with patients who have been exposed to trauma in their early childhood and as adults in their 40s and 50s, still suffering from it with their lives on completely different trajectories as a result. So I think, yes, it's possible, but they've got to get to professional care as soon as possible. And hopefully in the care of people who actually want to nurture them and want to care for them and can, can help them reset their expectations of what their relationships could be like with people. There have been several hearings on the children and where they would all be going. Mm -hmm. So there's a total of five children. Yeah. Uh, they have all, the courts have ruled that all the children have gone to their respective biological other parent. Mm. 
and there is a close court supervision that is going on and make the other thing that the judge also insisted on is because the children have now been separated. He wants to make sure that the children have time to be together, Mm. that their relationships as the blended family that they still have contact with each other. That's so nice. that's been ordered yes. for the children. It's um, and of course Thomas's mother has custody of the two other boys, and the court has. There's been a report back on how they're doing, and the report from child services is that they are quote thriving, and that they have an abundance of food. Ugh. That you what a relief have, that you even have to say that. Um, the fact that you have to is how sad this is. Oh, it's very sad. So all all the kids are now with their other biological parents. They're being watched by the courts. And Valva, who's been with the New York Police Department since 2005, he was working as a transit officer. The NYPD has suspended him without pay pending the outcome of this case. And again, we want to remind everyone that both of them have said that they are not guilty and deny these allegations. And the stories that we have just told you all come from prosecutors and police Mm -hmm. and the audio and video recordings from their home and from the mom. I still think it's amazing that they're maintaining innocence when there is video footage and audio uh, recordings. But hey, you are innocent until proven guilty. And I guess that's what they're maintaining. And that is our court system. Yes. But I I find this story very disturbing. I've been very upset by it. And uh, yeah. It's it's when you abuse the innocent yes. children, the elderly or animals. Oh, yeah. I just I can't. Right. Oh, yeah. Because they have no other way of getting out of it, really. You know, they're they're full victims. There's no choice, no volition in the matter. I mean, where are you going to go as a child? And also, if it's what you've known, I mean, you talked about this brain washing aspect of this, right? If this is what you know, sometimes you might not even know it's torture, or you might think, okay, daddy's mean sometimes, but you don't see it as what it truly is, which is horrific abuse, right? Yes. You don't know that. You, this is just your world. So I really hope that the kids are in much better hands now. So glad that the court has a good supervision on them. Yes. Yeah. I think the county is going to try and do right going forward based on what happened in the past. Thank goodness. We have another disturbing case. And this one, I really want you to help me get into the mind of this guy. Mm. Because, um, well, it's disgusting, of course. This is a Snapchat sextortion ring targeting children. A 30-year-old man, Joseph Woodson Jr. from Ashburn, Virginia, has been sentenced to 50 years in federal prison. And hopefully he will spend the rest of his life there. This is the case. Back in September of 2019 in Florida, he was convicted on three counts of production of child pornography, one count of distribution of child pornography, one count of sending threats, and one count of conspiracy. In essence, what he was doing, he was befriending girls on Snapchat. He would pretend to be of their age. He would convince the girls to give him the password to their Snapchat accounts. Mm -hmm. Then once he had the account and access to it, he gained control of it, and then he would lock them out. And then... He would extort them to get their accounts back. Or, of course, you know, he would probably post something really horrible since he had control of their Snapchat. Yeah. And what his demand was that for them to take videos and photos of themselves in sexual positions. Mm. And the girls did it in order to get their accounts back. 
So this went on for some time, and apparently he had um, a co-conspirator, but he's an unnamed co-conspirator, mm. which I find very interesting. He probably just rolled over and gave information to the authorities. Right. Um, so according, according to the indictment, Woodson and this unnamed co-conspirator would then store the images on Dropbox, and then they would share it with others who were interested in child pornography. Oh, God. He shared screenshots over the Internet and on message boards, and the FBI says that they were able to gather this evidence from two cell phones belonging to Woodson. And here's the other thing. They also uncovered, when they got hold of the accounts, that he would force the girls to refer to him as Sir. Ugh. So what do you make of this? He's 30 years old, so he's kind of young, mm-hmm. and he's preying on little girls. I mean, essentially what he did was he had he was producing child pornography by making the children produce the pornography themselves, videotape yes. it, give it to him, and then he would either—I mean, there's no allegation that he sold it, Ugh, but nonetheless, he made it available to, to other people. Right. I mean, there's so many issues inherent in this. It's like, where do you start? I mean, the first piece is the fact that— he tricked them into it, you know, using the most vulnerable methods, right? Where you befriend them, you make them trust you, you, you think you got a good friend that you just made. And then, you know, whatever he does gets access to their account and all of a sudden the tables turn and it's like, unfortunately for many of our teenagers, their social media account is everything. Right. And also there is compromising things sometimes in your social media accounts. Like I'm going to post even more compromising things. So then again, you know, these these girls, many of them 12 to 15 years old, their decision making isn't really all the way there yet. You know, we know that executive function doesn't really fully develop until someone's in their 20s. And so, again, as a teenager, all you can see is what's in front of you. Oh, my gosh, I don't want to be made fun of at school. I don't want people to um, harass me or bully me. So I better do what this guy says. And again, once it's revealed that this is an adult, that's the other thing about these teenagers. You know, again, as kids and teenagers, when adults do something, we kind of do it. You know, it's just like, oh, that's what you're supposed to do as a kid. You know, you haven't really learned to rebel and question so much, especially when they have so much power at that moment. And I find it interesting that people are making a statement about the fact that he supposedly has high functioning autism. Now, I don't know who gave him that diagnosis, if it's even true, but not all high functioning autism individuals are pedophiles. And also, he seems like his social skills were pretty intact there because he was able to dupe all these people. So his social skills were not terrible. You know what I mean? Yeah. That this was is not an impairment for him. No, that was the defense that his attorney put out there saying, you know, you got to give him a pass here because he's come got- on. Exactly. And then I think that just like completely does a disservice, right, to people who actually have autism. And now there's this weird association like, oh, you know, autistic People, they're so weird that one day they might become pedophile. No, I mean, there's no research evidence of that. And I do not like this defense. I think it's so sad. Well, obviously, the judge didn't buy it because he was convicted. No one one bought it. Yeah. So I'm curious here. At the point that the the girls were approached, he was pretending to be their age. Mm -hmm. And then when he had control of the account, he, he clearly then revealed no, I'm not a kid. Mm-hmm. I'm a man. And you're going to call oh, me, sir. sir. Ugh. So what do you think was going on? Like, what's he doing there? Yeah. So whether somebody's a pedophile or they just seem to be associating more with age inappropriate people, especially those that are much younger than them, like this guy did. Oftentimes, it's because you're actually quite insecure on the inside and you need to feel like you can be respected. So then you go after a population where 
your authority can't really easily be questioned. So sometimes we see that with people who are actually just so, so insecure about themselves. They're the ones who are more likely to associate with people 10 or 20 years younger than them. And in that way, kind of get an unquestioned obedience, right? And I think that there was something to that. I mean, perhaps his social life was kind of bleak and there wasn't a lot else going on. But I also think that somebody who would do this, they're also truly a pedophile. It's not just, oh, I have some insecurity issues and uh, I can't get people my age to respect me. So I got to get these younger people to do it instead. But I think that's still an element of it, you know, to have them call him sir. Again, that just that sense of power and coercion, again, very similar to that last case we talked about with Michael Volva. It's like, okay, great. You got a kid to call you sir. You feel better about yourself? I mean, I, I don't know where they... Where do they go with that? You know, do you, do, you, do you now sleep better at night because you got called sir by 10 different girls who are giving you sexual pictures? I mean, it's really hard to understand what was going on in his mind that made him want to do that to every one of them. And what can you tell us about the pedophile mind? You know? Yeah. You know, it's interesting because sometimes people will say that people who are pedophilic, that it's actually a type of sexual orientation that, and this is silly, but, you know, there's a theory that it's like, okay, some people are just not attracted to fully formed adults. They're just more attracted to younger people. But there's a lot more theories talking about how when individuals are true pedophiles, that something went deviant in their sexual development at some point. Now, there are some biological similarities with pedophiles in terms of their brain functioning. There are certain areas that don't function quite right. And we've seen some similarities, although it's not clear enough for us to make like a full diagnosis on that. But also many pedophiles have had traumatic experiences themselves and oftentimes those involving sexual trauma. And then they misattribute their attraction to children as opposed to adults. And there are treatments for pedophiles, but they need to want it. You know, there are some people who can say, okay, I have been rehabilitated, but it's interesting because when you interview them, they don't say, I'm not attracted to children anymore. They just say, I just know what the consequences are, so I don't act on it. So inside, they still feel attracted to children, which gives evidence to that theory of it might be a type of true attraction, but they just don't act on it. They don't do anything that could get them into trouble and hurt another human being. So it's like a behavioral conditioning that they are forcing themselves to go through as part of therapy. Right. But I, I very rarely hear a pedophile who says, you know, I've been attracted to children for 30 years and now I'm only attracted to adults. I mean, you don't really see that. So, yes, it's much more, like you said, more of a behavioral stop mm-hmm. that they're imposing on themselves, which is why they have to be motivated. So what's interesting about this case is that it came from a tip. And of all places, it came from the Center for Missing and Exploited Children. Mm. And the cops in Virginia followed up on it. Thank goodness they did. And then the FBI was involved in this because it was a multi-state operation. It didn't just happen where he was in Virginia. Um, And by the way, his job at the time was he was working as an assistant manager at a burger restaurant. Um, And the FBI, who was in charge of this case, said that Joseph Woodson Jr. was a menace who preyed on the most vulnerable among us, the children. Just yes. just a horrendous, horrendous case. And I'm so glad that the U.S. attorney is making an example out of him. You know, sort of like other child predators, beware. You can be in prison for the rest of your life if you choose to do something like this. And I can only imagine what prison is going to be like for him. Oh, right. But there's no sympathy here. Absolutely not. All right. Let's go to our comments area. So Daquan Norris was running from police when he attempted to pull a handgun 
from the waistband of his pants. This is what police say. And as he tugged at the handgun, it went off and it it ended up striking Norris in the right leg. Mm. So this is what our viewers, listeners' comments are. (laughs) So Galena L. says, my question is, what proof is there that the gun was his? Mm. It was found on the road and not on his person. So unless there is video footage of him throwing it out, I move his gun charge and all its pertinence be dropped. It's a budding, a budding attorney, maybe. I think so. A law student there. <laughs> That's right. Carol S. says he's lucky it pointed down to his foot and not to his junk, LOL. I'm with, I'm with Carol. <laughs> I think so, too. <laughs> and then Hulk T. writes, next time, go to safety gun classes, LOL. <laughs> oh, my gosh. You know what, though? I have heard this, that, you know, sometimes people get guns to protect themselves. And, of course, the statistics say that, you know— if you're not properly trained, you are actually more likely to hurt yourself with that gun than somebody else that you're trying to protect yourself against. So, yeah, I agree. I think I think Hulk is right. He needs to go get some gun training classes after his leg heals. Yeah, back to school for him. Yes. Uh, then we have another case, a Florida man who became famous in the Orlando area last year for fighting a man who was attacking a woman on the street. Now, the guy who intervened was wearing an Easter bunny costume. Okay, so— <laughs> The same guy was arrested last week for allegedly fleeing the scene of a wreck and once again in a costume. Oh. So this is a guy who's got a cost- costume thing, I guess. Yes, a costume fetish, I oh, guess. Could be. Yeah. Once uh, saving people and once, you know, leaving the scene of, of wow. an accident. Wow. So the comments here are ju- um, the comments here are Jose S. says, that's a bad bunny. Okay. <laughs> Nicole D, why not? It's Florida, LOL. Oh, my God. And then Kyle V says, I am just tired of these comic book movies about ridiculous characters in costumes. So I guess he's thinking that this guy could be a budding movie character. I don't know. That is really funny. That's a, that's a that's a random connection, though. Like, you know what? By the way, I also hate movies with uh, superhero ridiculous costumes. Um, but you know what? I think I think it's funny because um, in some ways it's almost like they're trying to obscure their identity in both cases, but with such a silly way that it's just hard to take it seriously, even if obviously there's a real crime involved here. Um, but you know what? I really like bunnies. It's really like makes me feel differently about bunnies at the moment. Aww, okay. I used to have a bunny. Really? Yeah, his name was Hamilton the 3rd. It was a very prestigious bunny. <laughs> oh my goodness. It was really cute. It was a mini Rex with like little uh brown uh spots and he was just so sweet. So He's ruined bunnies for me for like the next 30 minutes. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. How cute is that? Well, that's it for our show this week. Thank you, Dr. Judy Ho. Where can people connect with you, find you, see your work? So they can find me on Instagram and also on Twitter at Dr. Judy Ho and also my website at drjudyho.com. Excellent. And that's Ho, H-O. Yes. All right. And as always, you can find our content on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, also on YouTube. And you can get updates and subscribe to our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, this is True Crime Daily, the podcast reminding you, don't do crime. <laughs> 